Today we are uh, continuing in our current sermon series, uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful. <laughs> After spending several weeks on the good king named Hezekiah, we'll spend today talking about a bad king. And this guy will only get one week <laughs> of our time. I bet many of you thought I was going after old King Ahab, who's definitely bad, but I like to keep people guessing. So we're actually going to talk about King Jeroboam. Anybody, anybody have that figured out? Not really. Figured. Before we do that, though, let's walk through our Old Testament overview one last time today. And again, if you're new, you can just sit there and make fun of the rest of us. Okay. Uh, we're trying to fill in some blanks as we get the history of God's people, our people, into our heads. So, here we go. And we've got to be quick on this today. I've got to just keep right on moving. So, everybody got the thinking caps on? Ready? Ready, ready, ready? Now, if there's anyone here that's been reviewing the videos to try to get ready for this, I mean, that's just formidable. All right, here we go. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about creation. Chapter 3, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the first murder. Chapter 5, genealogies, a little bit boring. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the flood. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood, which is when we got the rainbow and that's what that's about, right? Chapter 10, again, the genealogies. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, go into land that I will show you. And he and his family, or I'm sorry, and I, I will make you a great and mighty nation. I will make your name great. And I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. So Abraham packed his bags and he and his family went up around the fertile crescent and they came up to a town called Haran which was barren so Abraham wondered what am I doing here but it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet so God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father Terah died finally they moved into the promised land but Abraham and his wife Sarah had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they're getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. So Jacob, aka Israel, had how many sons? Twelve, ten fingers, two earlobes. Twelve sons. The second youngest name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Egypt, where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and Joseph's whole family moved down to Egypt. For another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died and then Joseph died. So there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family. Uh, 
which had become very large by this time. So he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive and the people began to cry out saying, I love hearing that one. Is that, is that relevant today at all to, to anyone? Probably both personally and like globally. God, get us out of this mess. So God called a man named Moses and told him to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? 10 plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, Okay. Next, Moses. It's just like Abraham packing his bags, but only this time it's gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and up to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve again, who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. Ten leaders came back and said, no go. But two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten leaders and as a group, they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you're going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount Nebo. I don't see everybody doing that one. You don't want to hurt anybody, right? Nebo, where Moses died and a new leader was selected. We'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River, and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges, God, give us a king. The first king was Saul, the second king was David, and the third king was Solomon. They all ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were how many tribes in the north? Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. Zero. And there were eight good kings in the south. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came down to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. Seventy years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians. And the Persian king sent three leaders back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple, reestablished corporate worship, and rebuilt the wall. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi. 
And he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst onto the scene. By the way, can God be silent? Can he ever just let his word stand without having to have people making up new stuff? 400 years, silence, until John the Baptist came. Interesting thing to think about. He burst on the scene prophesying about Jesus Christ saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The gospel, which is what we're to be preaching today. And it's what we're about. Give yourselves a hand. Good job. Okay. Now the title of today's message is, How to Make God really mad. Just what you wanted to know, right? And King Jeroboam is going to show us the way. But you probably would want to know where this bad king named Jeroboam fits into the timeline we just covered. Well, we're rewinding quite a bit from good King Hezekiah, whose story is recorded in the book of 2 Kings, the one we've been talking about. We'll find Jeroboam's story in the book of 1 Kings, where we'll learn that he actually served as the first king of the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel. And remember that the southern kingdom became known as Judah, even though technically both kingdoms were Israel. So again, Jeroboam was the first of the kings to rule the northern kingdom. And how many good kings ruled in the north? One more time, zero. In other words, Jeroboam holds a distinction of being the first of 19 consecutive bad kings. More than that, just as the eight good kings in the south were said to have followed after their father David, many of the bad kings in the north were said to have followed after Jeroboam. By definition, bad leaders lead others to be bad. Let's read some of the story from 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26. I'm going to pause here and there and make some explanations. We're starting in chapter 11, verse 26, where it says, Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, Solomon's servant, whose name, mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now, this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the millow. This was like a fortress defending Jerusalem and closed up the breach of the city of his father, David. Okay. So Solomon is consolidating power in the South at the expense of the North, which leads to rebellion. Jeroboam serves Solomon at first, but he does so as an Ephraimite, which means he's from the tribe of Ephraim, probably the most prominent of the 10 Northern tribes, so much so that sometimes Israel is actually referred to in the Bible as Ephraim. Verse 28. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Okay, so by the way, just because Solomon was wise does not mean that everything he ever did was wise. Since Jeroboam was an Ephraimite, and since Ephraim was one of the two sons of Joseph, this means that the house of Joseph would have been his own house. And yet here he is being put in charge of basically the enslavement of his own people. That being said, take note that the northern tribes had agreed to such forced labor when they insisted that Samuel anoint Saul the first king. Regardless, now that it came down to it, and particularly due to Solomon's overreaching ambitions, the rebellion of the northern tribes was imminent. Now, the bigger picture here is that God is orchestrating all of this behind the scenes in order to bring judgment upon Solomon, who had sinned in taking many wives 
even following after some of their gods. Verse 29, it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak and both of them were alone in the field. Then Elijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes, but he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant, David, and the sake of Jerusalem, the city, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. So here comes the divided kingdom, 10 tribes in the North and two in the South, though I'm sure you noticed that it says here only one tribe was left to Solomon in the south. This is due to the fact that one of the two southern tribes was Benjamin, the smallest of the twelve, and Benjamin was more or less surrounded by Judah landwise, so they eventually started referring to Judah and Benjamin as one tribe, simply calling it Judah, just as they sometimes refer to all of the north as Ephraim, the largest tribe in the north. This is all helpful to know when you're reading scripture. Now, our storyline might seem to suggest that God desired this division of his kingdom all along, but I do not believe that to be the case. God works all things together for good, but that does not mean all things that happen are good or that all things are exactly what God would have preferred. If God's will were being done perfectly on earth at all times, then the earth would be perfectly like heaven at all times. Obviously, that is not the case. It seems clear that God's perfect will would have been for Judah and Israel to stay together. But as a part of his judgment against Solomon, God took advantage of one who was already bent toward rebellion, using that rebellion to judge Solomon's sin. After all, we cannot think that God's preference would have been for Solomon to sin, breaking God's covenant. And if Solomon had not sinned, then he would not have needed to be judged, which would have meant that the kingdom could have remained united. Take note that when, for the sake of judgment or discipline, God allows evil and rebellious men to bring harm to his own people, that does not mean it was his preferred plan all along. As it turns out, God chooses not to control every single thing on this earth, even while he does control the whole thing. Something very helpful to remember for as long as we live on this fallen planet. Skipping ahead in the story, take note that in chapter 12, verse 20, Jeroboam is officially crowned king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in verse 26, let's pick it up and read about his first inclinations as king, which essentially are to make sure he is able to keep this newly gained power. From chapter 12, verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So at this point, Solomon had died and his son Rehoboam had become king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Reading on, verse 28. So the king, talking about Jeroboam, consulted somebody, not the Bible, somebody, and made two golden calves. And he said to them, to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt, the calves. That is brazen. One might even say that's bad. 
See, Jeroboam doesn't want the people thinking they ought to go to the temple in Jerusalem for worship because that could lead to him losing power. So he starts creating this counterfeit version of God and a counterfeit version of how and where to worship. Oh, how many times has God's true religion been counterfeited throughout history? And usually it's because some human being wants to hold on to power. Reading on, verse 29, he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 18th month, uh, eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. After this, God sent an unnamed prophet to pronounce judgment on Jeroboam in a very powerful, even miraculous way. And then a false prophet came also. But without getting into all those details, the end of it is that even after hearing from God, Jeroboam did not repent. Let's read on from chapter 13, verse 33. After this event... Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests of the high places from among, among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. So what happened here is that Jeroboam actually institutionalized idolatry, making it a matter of national pride in such a way that 18 kings after him followed suit until God's great mercy and compassion had been exhausted, at which point Assyria was used by God to wipe them out. The departure of Israel from Yahweh mostly all started, officially anyway, when Jeroboam took bits and pieces of what God had said and added to it and twisted it around all to build and protect his own kingdom. This is idolatry at its worst. Skipping ahead in the story to chapter 14, Verse 7, the prophet Ahijah returns to give Jeroboam this message from the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. Now, Let's stop and notice something here. Was David perfect? <laughs> if there's one thing we all know about David, isn't it interesting? We really don't like, we want to, it's the things, the faults is what we talk the most about. He was not perfect, but he was good. Throughout the book of the Kings, we read that David was a good king. According to God, David followed the Lord. Read it. David followed the Lord and is remembered by him with fondness. While Jeroboam would be cursed and always remembered as evil. Listen, how you live your life matters. You can choose to be bad. We're not so depraved as human beings that we have no chance of being good. Not when we have a savior. Don't be fatalistic about your ability to be a good person by grace through faith in Christ. Or as Joshua put it, choose 
today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. While I'm at it, the famous verse that says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And similar verses are often taken in an absolute way that would contradict other biblical statements. The Bible straight up tells us that certain people were in fact righteous, such as Noah and Abraham, both of whom were made righteous on the basis of faith. The theological perspective that every human equally needs the Savior is 100% correct. But that does not mean all men and women are equally evil. Not even from God's perspective. Reading on in verse 9 about Jeroboam, who was not righteous. Verse 9, you also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat for the Lord has spoken it. Are you getting the idea that God was mad at Jeroboam? Oh yeah, God gets angry and God gets fed up. With what? With what? More evil. More evil. Did you see that there? More evil. Can there be more evil? Or is it all the same to God? Well, I'm here to tell you there can be more evil, according to God. And more evil makes God very angry. I'll add that nobody has shown me in scripture how God has changed on this. And I don't believe he has. God still gets madder about some things than other things. And he gets madder at some people than other people. God still gets provoked And he still judges individuals and perhaps nations or groups of people even now. Listen, earthly judgment can still happen to people who spurn the Lord of heaven and earth right here and right now. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That said, I know I need to address something before I even finish up the story. Our text says the family of Jeroboam, particularly his sons, were to be wiped out. This doesn't seem fair or just, does it? That his sons would pay for his sins. Maybe it's time I read you another verse of scripture that's tough to swallow. And I'm going to take some time to chase down this rabbit. So bear with me. As many of you know, the Bible actually says in Numbers 14, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Now, as with any passage of scripture that you don't like, you can have several different reactions. You can get mad at God for the way things are. Worse, you can doubt the authority of scripture, wishfully thinking this isn't really what God wanted to say. You can try to forget about it or ignore it. But as a Bible-believing Christian, what you ought to do instead is grapple with challenging truths like this and study and pray and try to figure out how it does or does not apply. While admitting your own limitations 
in regard to comprehending God, you can still try to understand how something like this fits into the rest of what you know about God and His Word. In this case, I think the key is to look at this verse as a general principle rather than as a universal law. But where do I get the uh, scriptural authority to do that with this verse? In other words, I don't want you to just take my word for it. Why would we take it as a general principle rather than a universal law? Well, I get it first from the fact that I simply don't see an always in this text. But implied, at least in terms of the consequence, is more of a usually or often. After all, is it the third or fourth generation? Or is it always both? Which begs the question of why the text doesn't simply say to the fourth generation. If it's an absolute, I guess it would really kind of matter for my great-great-grandson someday when it can potentially stop at the third or if it always goes to the fourth generation. Besides this, what does it mean to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon them? Couldn't this be more like saying that the same sins are likely to be a struggle for them? What does a visitation of sins upon someone really mean? Does it necessarily mean they have no chance to overcome these sins or might they be able to fight off the visitation of these sins? Might they even be able to struggle through to victory? My point is that there is at least a little bit of ambiguity here. This concept of generational sin and generational consequence, which most definitely is being communicated in the Word of God, is not an absolute law to be interpreted to the worst possible degree. Perhaps more importantly, this truth actually plays out in Scripture as a general principle rather than an absolute law. And that very definitively, we just studied about Hezekiah. His dad was a loser par excellence, a very bad king who sinned atrociously before God and was judged for it. And yet Hezekiah, his son, stood strong, possibly even standing out as the best king ever. Hezekiah was made prosperous by God, certainly not judged or cursed for his father's sin. Clearly, Hezekiah was able to break out of the norm of what usually happens in terms of generational sin. And the point is this, so can you. Additionally, the fact is that even when God pronounces specific judgment on a person or a group of people, he doesn't always go through with it. That's right. In fact, we see God relenting from judgment often in Scripture because our God defaults toward grace. He may even pronounce judgment with absolute language, seemingly leaving no room for a change of plans. And yet sometimes there is exactly that, a change of plans. After all, the first part of the verse says, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. This is over on this side of the equation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. Okay, but what about before he forgave? Well, if you'd have asked him at that moment, perhaps he would have pronounced judgment in anger. There's a before and after to forgiveness. There are actually several instances in Scripture where God tweaks his plan, especially when those plans relate to judgment. God would say he was going to kill someone or destroy some city. But then that person or that city would plead for forgiveness and God would relent. We didn't study the last part of the story of Hezekiah. Recorded in 2 Kings chapter 20, but I can tell you that's one of the clearest examples of God changing his mind 
in the Bible. And I'm not, you know, I realize that some of you are probably cringing right now as I say that, but it's pretty clear in Scripture that God can change His mind. His sovereignty is just that big. He doesn't break promises or covenants or changing His character. But God can adjust His plan, particularly when it comes to timing. Or at the very least, it can certainly read that way to us. We have a God who is known to relent. By the way, when everything is set in stone, it goes to crazy land. It gets crazy. So can this same God not potentially relent from punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generations? I believe he can and he does. I believe this is a principle that's often true, but I also believe that Jeroboam's offspring had a choice, their own choice. I believe that God's punishment of them was not solely based on what Jeroboam had done, but also on what they chose to do and what God knew they would do if they were allowed to go on living. God knows the future, in case you forgot. And apparently he knew these sons and servants of Jeroboam were going to follow in their father's footsteps, which is why God wiped them out as a part of his judgment on Jeroboam. Now, having digressed more than enough at this point, the general principle we need to know from this section of Jeroboam's story is this. Our sin affects our children and their children and their children and their children. At the very least, it makes life harder on them. If you're not motivated by anything else, maybe you could be motivated by this because it's true whether you like it or not. Generally speaking, your kids and their kids and on down are going to be affected by your choices. We see this in those who followed after Jeroboam, and we just read that as they actually followed in his footsteps, they were judged severely. Back to the story. In God's judgment on Jeroboam from chapter 14, Verse 14, moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River. Which is exactly where Assyria is from. Is Because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger, he will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and with which he made Israel to sin. Isn't it interesting how God, God's prophecies just, just keep coming true? Like when he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. The prophet here predicts exactly what would happen 18 kings later. In 722 B.C., when Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria, captured them, dispersed them, and we, as we've been saying, we never heard from them since. By the way, you should be aware that we still have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin around today, just not the other ten tribes, because they ceased to exist thanks to Jeroboam. I wonder if Jeroboam realized he was going to go down as a bad king. Did he, did he get it? Did he know he was going to be on the bad list? Don't you know that Jeroboam probably justified everything he did somehow? I mean, this guy would have grown up as a good Jewish boy, just like David or Hezekiah or the others. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Ten Commandments. He knew how God had punished his countrymen and passed for idolatry. He knew about Aaron's golden calf and God's judgment on the people. He had heard the judgments of the prophets, the judges during those 400 years. 
He knew all that. So how could Jeroboam know all that and still wind up doing what he did? How could he think he would get by with such obvious idolatry and disobedience? How could Jeroboam directly disobey the one true God? Well, how can you? And how can I? Friends, there's a good way to live and a bad way to live. Throughout history, people have made choices and those choices have mattered. There are those who God would have, got, have good things to say about and there are those whom God would call bad. Scripture is full of such statements. So-and-so was good, so-and-so was evil. I certainly recognize and preach often that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I realize that no culpable human being is going to make it into heaven without faith in Christ and grace from Christ. But you can't get around the fact that some people are worse or better than others in God's eyes. Not if we're getting our facts from the Bible and the stories of the Bible. So here's the question. What about you? You know, it speaks to the whole, well, I'm saved, so... I'm good. It doesn't matter how I live. God knows. It matters. Every single mentally capable person in all of history is required to have faith in God's Messiah in order to be saved from eternal damnation. That's a fact. On the other side, if you know Christ, you are forgiven and cleansed. And your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. So I'm not talking about your forgiven position before God, which if you're saved is flawless. But right now as the church assembled, what I want you to think about when you read these stories is legacy. What would God write about you? Listen, when the Bible says God chooses to remember our sins no more, I don't think it means he's literally blind to our behavior. I think that's a misinterpretation. El Roy is still the God who sees. He chooses to forgive because of the blood of Jesus. He chooses not to hold us accountable for what he's already been, what's already been punished in Christ on the cross, but he still sees. He chooses to count faith as righteousness on the basis of the saving work of Christ, even choosing to look at the blood instead of the sin, but that doesn't literally mean God has no clue or is completely unaware of what you did last night. Besides this, we also know that there will be a certain type of judgment for believers. At the Bema Seat of Christ, we will see exactly what kind of life we lived. I believe we will see exactly why Jesus had to die on our behalf. And while for the believer all has been forgiven, the Bible does say that some will enter heaven as through fire, while others will be rewarded to varying degrees. Do we not understand the price of sin? Do we think we can take advantage of grace without consequence? Do we try to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say? Like Jeroboam, do we figure times are different? We need to put our own twist on things. Folks, there's a word for that and it's idolatry. We tend to subtly make God in our own image so we can worship him as we please. Pastors do it to tickle ears and keep people in the seats. And I'm not immune to the temptation. You think I'm not tempted to soften on things like homosexual sin or premarital sex 
or whatever else is supposedly now acceptable to a holy God? Do you think I enjoy standing on the fact that pastors ought to be men? According to Scripture? Do you think it's not tempting for me to change my views with the times? Of course it is, particularly when even some of my earthly heroes are doing so as we speak. But when I remember the consequences of leading God's people astray, I remain steadfast. And that's precisely why we have scripture about the bad guys, like Jeroboam. So let's learn from the tragedy of this bad king. How can we apply the story which we have read and discussed this morning very briefly? Four points of application. To make God really mad. Number one, use his gifts mostly for your own interests. In chapter 11, verse 28, our text says, Jeroboam was a highly capable young man. The New American Standard says that he was industrious, so much so that King Solomon took note and put him in charge. This guy was talented, having standout abilities which had been given to him by God. Our text also says that God handed Jeroboam kingship to rule over the ten tribes in the north. That's quite a gift of leadership and power, something he never could have come to on his own. But what did Jeroboam do with these gifts from God? Did he use them to bring glory to the Lord? Did he work to accomplish God's purpose? Did he lead people to Yahweh with his God-given leadership? No, it seems Jeroboam's only interest was looking out for number one. Instead of giving himself and even his leadership away, he fought to keep it. He grasped at what he had been given. Always a mistake in God's kingdom. What about you? What gifts has God given you? Do you have talents or abilities or experience that could somehow point other people to God? Do you have a position of leadership or influence? Do you have resources? Are you using those things to serve Him? Or are you basically taking care of yourself and maybe your family? If you want to make God really mad, just hoard the abilities, the resources, the blessings, and the position in life that he has given you and use it all mostly for your own interests. That's what Jeroboam did, and that's part of why he's considered one of the bad kings. Secondly, to make God really mad, do things your way. If there is one thing that is clear in our story, it is that Jeroboam did things his way. He knew how God had said things were to be done, but he preferred and practiced his own way instead. Our text says he appointed his own priests, not even from the tribe of Levi. He made his own places of worship, though God had ordained Jerusalem as the place. He mandated his own religious festivals and even created his own substitutes for the Ark of the Covenant, placing golden calves in the places where the people were to go and worship. Jeroboam took what God had said and put his own spin on it. Creating a counterfeit religion, which, by the way, was a religion still being practiced by the people known as the Samaritans hundreds of years later during the time of Jesus. So Jeroboam's new twist on God's religion really caught on very well to the point that it was still leading people astray hundreds of years later. Makes me think of a false teacher like Joseph Smith. Jeroboam simply ignored what God had said and made up his own version. 
of religion. And oh, it's easier to think of people like Joseph Smith or Charles Russell of Jehovah's Witness fame or Muhammad or even certain portions of the Roman Catholic Church for that matter. But to what degree have you and I done the same thing? How easily we see what others have done wrong. But what have we done? Or what are we tempted to do? How is the evangelical church? Some of you are like, is that us? Sorry, yeah, kind of is. How is the evangelical church twisting Christianity today? How are politicians twisting it? What is even being done right now by some of our leaders? What is being done right now by the pastor of the largest church in our denomination? Some of you know about that. But there we go again. Pointing fingers rather than making application to our own lives. Is there any part of your life where you are ignoring what God has clearly said and doing things your own way? Do you ever find yourself saying, well, I know what the Bible says, but... Oh, I hear that all the time. Maybe, maybe I've even said it. God forbid. Be assured, we're making God really mad when we do that. How about church attendance as an example? How about what the Bible calls the Lord's Day? People say they don't need the church to be a Christian. But doesn't the Bible indicate that Christians should be gathering together on the Lord's day? Yes, it sure does. Doesn't it say we should not forsake the time that we have been that's set aside to worship as a church family? You better believe it does. And that's just one example in Christianity today. Friends, our Christianity is way too easy. If following Christ doesn't cost you, and I mean cost you a lot, then you need to examine whether you're truly following or whether you're really following yourself. As Bonhoeffer put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's absolutely as biblical as it gets. But we have our own new improved version of Christianity, don't we? And we also have our own Jeroboams to follow. By the way, I suggest you figure out who the Jeroboams are in your life and go back to the true word of God rather than their version of it. Be careful with the internet. How did the church survive before the internet? They studied their Bibles and listened to their pastors. And maybe if God did something else so loud, somebody came to town or whatever, maybe they heard it, but they weren't searching for it. Let's see how many voices we can listen to. Maybe if it's got to be found on the internet, you don't need it. <clears throat> Watch out for Jeroboam's. Moving on to the next point. To make your church members really mad. I mean, to make God really mad. <laughs> Number three, protect your own position at the cost of his. Similar to the last point, but this time we're talking about protecting or defending our own power or position in such a way that it means God is somehow defamed 
or dishonor. In verses 26 through 28 of chapter 12, we see Jeroboam protecting his own position at the cost of God's position. This is where Jeroboam realizes that politically he'd be better off if people don't go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So he starts creating his own religion with the golden calves and all that. Winds up lowering the position of God to protect his own position. Now, what got Jeroboam going down the wrong path was basically his heart. Verse 26 tells us, Jeroboam said in his heart, in his heart, if I'm not careful, the kingdom will return to the house of David. He got worried about his own turf, his own position. So he put things in motion that would ensure his position would be protected, even at the expense of the position of God. Notably, his choice doomed 10 of the 12 tribes to oblivion. Jeroboam was more concerned with keeping his status than he was with remembering God's status. Basically, he made a decision that was good for him, but bad for God. Interestingly, if you pay attention, you'll probably find out that opportunities to do this happen often in your own life. I'd encourage you to just watch and see. If you don't face a moment this coming week when you can keep turf for yourself by not giving it to God. I'm talking about things like power and influence and affirmation and standing or how well you might be thought of by somebody else or maybe a choice like this. Will I look like a fool to tell someone about Jesus or will I stay cool by passing up the opportunity? And that's just an example of the kind of situation where we protect our own position at the expense of God's position. Guys, have you ever maybe even said, men, I'm sure it was earlier in your life, but have you ever even said, maybe to buddies at work, oh, I mostly just, mostly just go to church to keep my wife happy. Ladies, do you do things and say things you shouldn't say to fit in with friends? Have you ever not spoken up for God's truth because you knew it would cost you? That's keeping your own position at the cost of His. And Jeroboam would tell you from his grave, it's not a good idea. Lastly, to make God really mad, lead others to sin. Our text explicitly tells us that Jeroboam led all Israel into sin. We also know that his example affected his children, as well as all of the other kings who came after him, who the Bible repeatedly says followed in his footsteps. Let me read a few examples. About King Basha, the Bible says, But you have followed the evil example of Jeroboam. You have aroused my anger by causing people to sin. About King Zimri, the Bible says, For he too had done what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the example of Jeroboam. It says the same about King Omri and King Ahab, among others, that they followed the example of Jeroboam. The name of Jeroboam became synonymous with how to be a bad king in the eyes of God. By the way, it's always good to remember that we have no idea how much of the future we are impacting with our lives today. Because of King David's, King David's influence, the southern king of Judah was blessed. They experienced several great kings, descendants of David like Hezekiah and Jehu and Josiah and others. But because of Jeroboam's influence, the ten tribes of the north were eventually blotted from the face of the earth. And what about his family? 
that's always where it starts. In terms of leading others into sin. Jeroboam led his family into sin. And God's response in that arena was catastrophic, as we've discussed already. From somewhere in hell right now, Jeroboam would testify that if you lead your family into sin, particularly that, you're going to make God really mad. Let me take this one step further. If you really want to make God mad, lead children into sin. Pointing to some children, Jesus said, It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large stone around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to sin. How you doing with this, dads? How you doing with this, moms? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Little ears, what you hear. True conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, not from a preacher. And so if you feel convicted, be thankful that God is speaking to your heart right now because that means God loves you enough to warn you and call you back before it's too late. Listen, everyone leads someone. Who do you lead? By your example or by your words, are you leading someone into sin? Maybe it's a younger brother or sister. That's something to think about also. Leading others, especially children, into sin is a very serious thing. Have you been indoctrinated by lies from the world until you have watered down some particular truth in the Word of God? Are you teaching this lie to others? What if you were to tell a child, for instance, that he or she can choose to identify as a girl or as a boy, depending on however he or she feels? What if you told a young person still developing never to suppress whatever they desire, sexually speaking, whether same sex or otherwise? What if you said to a little girl, don't let anyone tell you that you can't be the pastor of a church? What if you said to a little boy, maybe someday they'll figure out a way for you to have a baby? You think that's, that's not funny anymore. That's real. What if we taught kids there's no difference between a man and a woman? That's all just a made-up construct that God has no specific roles for men and women based on gender. What if we lied to children? By the way, I didn't pick any of those examples randomly. These are lies being told to children as we speak. And I didn't pick anything that is a gray area in the Bible. I could have. I could have talked about movies we maybe shouldn't watch with kids in the room. Or I could have talked about alcohol or bad language or other gray areas where people might draw the lines in different places, but I did not. I only gave examples that are not debatable for people who believe the Bible is God's infallible word. Examples of lies that we're teaching our children, a whole generation. Children are being led astray all around us. Like never before, like nothing I've ever seen, are children being led astray in so many ways. We need to make sure we are not part of the problem. Even in subtlety or silence, 
particularly today, hear me say that God has specific roles for men and women, both in the family and in the church. These roles validate our genders. And none is more important than the other, with the possible exception of childbearing, which might be the most important thing a person can do on earth. And take note that only women can do it. Isn't it crazy that the devil could make the ability to give birth seem trivial? Or less than? Or somehow not as important as some of the things that men are supposed to do? I mean, I'm not saying I want to trade or anything. I mean, <laughs> I've seen that deal. Satan is deceiving the world around us about what's important and what matters. The real question, though, is this. Are you willing to accept what God has said? Or are you basically making up your own religion? Are you influencing others away from God's truth and into something a little more acceptable to our culture? The temptation and the pull of culture is so very strong, but based on what we see in the life of Jeroboam and others, leading people into sin makes God really, really mad. And folks, God is not someone to be trifled with. Now, it's time to find out who is astute today. Did anyone notice the acronym in these four points? The underlined words start with the letters I-D-O-L, idol. That's because I can sum up all four of these actions that make God so angry with one word, idolatry. That's really what all these sins amount to, breaking the first and second commandments that God gave us, refusing to worship Him alone, and obeying Him as God, idolatry. I assure you that even without literal golden calves, idolatry is alive and well right here in 21st century American, right here in 21st century American Christianity. And we're probably all guilty, at least to some degree. So what are we going to do about it? Someone may need to repent today. You need to confess your sin to God, which means to agree with Him about it. And then you need to commit to making changes. That's repentance. Would you pray with me? Lord, Lord, it's not about us getting on our high horse or thinking we're better than other people or that we have all the answers, that we, we're right and everyone else is wrong. This is not the point today. But the point is that we, have, we are responsible for how we're leading others and we can lead in the, the bad direction or the good direction. We can lead away from your truth or we can lead toward your truth and it is so much harder to lead toward your truth more and more every day. God, give us the strength as a church. The whole church, yes, but right now today, I pray for this church. I pray Go Church will be different. I pray we will find that balance between truth and love. Today's been mostly about truth. We want to remember the love part, to share with gentleness and respect, as your word says, to show love first and truth second, those kinds of things that we talk about sometimes. But God, we cannot be silent we cannot be twisted. We cannot go the way of the world. I pray for the few, and I'm afraid it will be few, who could have the scales fall off and see the truth 
that is in your word and the lies that are in the world. We know that can't ultimately happen until the Holy Spirit comes in on someone's heart, which happens upon faith in Jesus Christ. So today, I pray for whoever's here today that has never truly put their full hope and trust in Jesus as Savior. Someone maybe would be willing to do that today, just responding to your spirit and saying, yes, I'm ready to walk away from the world and the lies and my own thinking even and just trust in the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who came as a human being in Jesus Christ to die on a sin, to die on a cross for our sin, to be risen from the grave, to conquer death so that he could come through on his promise of eternal life. We put our trust in him. We put our trust in you, God, today. Help us as a church to shine the light. Do not remove our lampstand. This is some of the case in some of the churches that we read about in Scripture who were not holding to the truth. Help us, Lord, to be strong in a world that needs a strong witness. Help us to be clear in a world of confusion. And help us to do it all with love, even though it may be rejected and called hate. Let us actually have love. Let us actually have love in our heart that we don't want people to wander and stray and wind up in, in hell. That we care and that we love enough to share things that help people to turn from that path and to turn to you. Give us love, the kind of love that would share with our neighbors, even though it's hard, and even though it makes us unpopular. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.go.org gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.